0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's one o'clock in California, it's nine o'clock in London, and it's time for the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I've never started the show that way before. First of all, I'm Ed Krasnick, and my co-host is Jennifer Kalari, and we do a show where we talk about mental health issues, and we actually practice skills to deal with those issues. Uh, We all have mental health issues, and when when it comes to mental health, we're all children. No one knows anything, uh, for sure, but we try things, and mental health is a practice. Jennifer helps us with actually practicing skills that we can use to relate to thoughts and feelings and learn about the brain and how it works. I'm still trying to figure out if I have a brain, um, but I know that that it's in there. I, I promise you that. There's a lot that we want to talk about, but our guest today is somebody who I love. But years ago, the way I I met this person is I looked online and I was looking at some videos on YouTube, and there was a video called The Urine Bomber. And first of all, with the title, I'm going to investigate that right away. But it's The Urine Bomber, and it was one of the funniest things, most creative things I've seen. And I thought to myself, I literally said to myself, I have got to meet that person. I did. And we became friends and we've been friends for years. She is a brilliant uh, creator, a terrific writer, has written for TV uh, on a number of different shows and has a great book that we're going to talk about today, too, called Sober Stick Figure, which talks about her alcoholism. It's a memoir. There are stick figures in it. And also, some wonderful writing and storytelling. Very funny, dark, personal, honest, great stuff. And that's Amber Tozer. Amber is here with us. And again, she's the London part of the show today. Yeah, there's a lot to say. Listen, the country, the US has gone through a big change. I have to say that no matter what side of the aisle you're on, one of the things that's come up is decency. Treating each other with respect, and realizing that there are good things that we can do if we work together—that's basic stuff. But when you hear the president saying it, it's really, you know, it's really powerful. It's interesting to to listen to. And one of the things that that Biden did when he brought his appointees in, there was a virtual um, like ceremony, and he said, "We're going to treat each other with dignity, with respect. We're not going to talk down to each other." We're going to connect with each other. We're going to tell the truth. And he said, if I catch you, if you work for me and I catch you talking down to somebody or mistreating somebody or not being decent with another person, I will fire you on the spot. He literally said the words, I will fire you on the spot because we have to restore those things uh, to our government and to each other. And then there was the greatest special that I've ever seen in my life celebrating America. The way they produced this thing, standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, weaving in stories of everyday Americans who are doing amazing work with great performers uh, doing their work, was uh, it's one of the most spectacular shows I've ever seen. And it actually made me realize that there are a lot of good things in America. And I haven't been feeling that for a long time. <laughs> So it's nice to, to feel those things. I want to, as we always do, a few emotional shout-outs. I like to welcome people no matter what state they're in uh, mentally. So here are emotional shoutouts. If your house is starting to look like Costco, welcome. If you're doing lip syncing to yourself, welcome. If you've ordered the making of a murderer lunchbox, welcome. If you've caught your therapist singing a karaoke version of I Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore, welcome. If you lose your phone daily and you think it's part of a government conspiracy, welcome. And if when you close your eyes in the shower, you see the face of Tony Robbins asking you why you're wasting your life, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. There's also a new thing that's happening. We're we're going to be sharing this in the coming weeks. But there's a therapy matching service, which matches clients and therapists. And it's like a dating service. And it's, it's called It's Only Lunch and Feelings. And it basically is you having lunch with a prospective therapist and then having a therapy at the same time. So it's something that we're going to pursue, but just one of the great things that's happening in the world right now. Um, there there are also worldwide horoscopes, emotional horoscopes that we're gonna be sharing later. But right now, I wanna bring in our visitor from the south, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, we've seen fire and we've seen rain. <laughs> Is it possible for a country to actually be getting therapy? <laughs> and and what would a mass therapy program look like? Did it look like the, the inauguration or what would what would that be like?
1: Um, wow. I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know go. either.
0: I'm just bringing it up. I, I don't know why I'm bringing it up. You know, I don't want to get partisan about
1: it. I actually have an answer for that. And it's the okay. same answer when families come to me and they say, what do I do about my kid? Okay. Where we actually have control over our lives and where we pretty much only have control over our lives is over ourselves, right? You cannot control conditions. You can control your response to those conditions, how you perceive those conditions and then what actions you take. So if we all work on literally being the fabulous person we wish our kid would be, our spouse would be, our neighbor would be, fellow Americans would be, fellow citizens of the world would be, that's the answer. Right. It literally starts each one of us looking at what we need to look at, learning where we need to learn, being the best person we can. And of course you're going to have days where you don't do so well and you pick yourself up and you try again. That's the answer. If everyone did that, Households would improve, communities would improve. It would all improve. So you have to ask yourself questions.
0: You have to actually. And sometimes it's like you know people say all the time, "How are you doing?" But you have to ask yourself, "Where am I at? What's going on with me? How am I feeling? Am I okay? Mm-hmm. Is there something I need to do to to feel okay?" Or just simple questions: "How am I?" You know, this is a question that if you ask yourself this question when you start your day you might get some answers. That's true. And those answers might lead you to things that would help you.
1: Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Like when you go out, when, back in the days when we could go out for lunch with a friend, when you're Zoom calling with your friend and you say, how are you? And they're like, oh, let me tell you. And they start a litany of things they're complaining about. Don't do that with yourself. You can do it a little bit. You can say, oh, I'm feeling, you know, really move into the feeling. Let it resonate. Read it like data, like go in to it before you release it. and then don't rant, right? If you, if the whole day you're going, I can't believe this. And of course this would happen. And well, of course that wouldn't open when I wanted it to and nothing. If that's what you're doing constantly, constantly in your head, then you are actually changing your biochemistry and you're affecting your outside world. That's not actually not helping anything. It doesn't work at all. So allow yourself to feel it and then do a reverse rant. Okay, uh it's sunny today and uh, my coffee turned out okay and my you know I really love how soft these sweatpants <laughs> that I'm wearing are. It sounds so ridiculous, but force your brain to focus and l- out loud talk about what is good, what is working, what is okay, what is nice in your life and do that over and over again and you will rewire your brain. You will. I tell
0: you, I love this reverse rant idea. I love reverse ranting. I mean, we listen to you know, Abraham Hicks and, you know, listen to her, uh, to that, that kind of how you connect with a positive vibration mm-hmm. or with, a, with positive, not, not just positivity, but with the energy that's available to you by just looking at what works. It's a kind yeah. of, ener, it's kind of energy that feeds on itself, just like negativity feeds on itself.
1: Of course. Same
0: kind of energy, we're just going in a different direction. But you can be really specific about, you can have lunch, you can have a meal and look into the lunch and just savor what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, take a minute, look at it. And I'm the worst at this because um, I grew up, you know, with people who were eating and choking and then yelling at each other. Um, I, I, I actually heard the words, who's chasing you? Um, <laughs> while I was eating. Oh, so wow. I, grew, I grew up in a very, I mean, it was a very loving family too, but we had some habits and every family has some habits. Habits, sure. But anyway, this, this idea of, you know, it's not Pollyannish to actually look at what's good and take time. Now, when you're in survival mode, it seems insane because it seems like, how can you
1: look at what's good? Yeah. It's also the last thing in the world your brain is going to tell you to do right? It's going to say things are bad. Things are not going to get any better. Focus on what's negative so you can actually stay alive. There's a whole biological push behind this that your brain wants you not to take your eye off whatever's dangerous. And it can't tell the difference between the bills that are piling up and a saber-toothed tiger that's about to leap at you. This is a new habit that you have to create. And we're ranting anyway. Do the exact same thing. Just do the positive. And don't even do it all. Just just do it a few times a day, even doing that. Because biochemically, your brain will start to match that. The chemicals in your body will be different. You will actually get a break from yourself if you can do that.
0: I'll tell you what stops me. I always feel like I have to feel better to feel good. In other words, I can't exercise now because I don't feel good. I'll do it later. Mm -hmm. I can't do this positive, this looking at what's working now because it's going to take too much time.
1: Yeah. How do you answer those voices? Listen, we do that with a lot of things. Uh, If, when, right? I'll do this when the conditions are right. We do a lot of, make a lot of decisions that way in our lives. What I usually do with my clients and certainly the, the teenagers and kids that I work with is just start with something really small. So let yourself complain, let free rant, just, you know, riff on how terrible everything is for a few minutes and then stop and then focus your mind, shift the lens and actually just try to find one tiny thing, one small thing that is slightly better than what you were just ranting about. And what you do is you're kind of sneaking around the anxiety because you can't do that thing where you're like, oh, I'm really glad to have this. And are I lucky? Because no, no, you don't feel lucky in those moments. You feel miserable in these moments. It's too—it's a shock to the body to to try and shift your mood that quickly. So you just take these little baby steps. And if if one of the thoughts is maybe a little bit too positive, then you're like, no, 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 that's too positive. I'm going to go back down one step. Okay, the only thing I can really feel good about right now is that whatever. I like that picture on the wall or something. And it sounds so dumb. I realize how dumb it sounds. But Ed, you and I have received all kinds of responses from people and emails from people. And I hear this all the time from my clients that, yeah, it seems simple, but it works. You just have to commit to it. You're complaining anyways. So do something that actually helps instead of something that makes it worse.
0: And I think the magic of it is that you will actually experience a shift in the moment. Mm-hmm. You won't be as as anxiety-ridden. You, your feeling will change a little bit. And then all of a sudden, it occurs to you in that moment, oh my God, I did that. I mm-hmm. can make that choice and by thinking different things, I can actually change how I feel. Absolutely. And when you get that connection, you're like, holy cow, holy.
1: Yeah, that's power. I had a little kid say to me last week in one of our sessions, I finally, I feel powerful and not in a horrible negative, I'm going to take over the world kind of way. But like, I feel like I'm not at the whim. This is an 11 year old girl. I feel like I'm not at the whim of my emotions anymore. I can control my feelings instead of my feelings controlling me.
0: Wow, I feel like I need to, you know, I need to to talk to that person, that 11-year-old and and basically have her be my parent if I could.
1: She worked hard at it. It's no, there's no yeah. switch. There's no yeah. there's no easy answer to this. There's there's meticulously and regularly working on this and slowly slowly you'll start to rewire your brain.
0: I love that. I love to hear that. And we have gotten a lot of good uh, interesting response from people, and and next week's show, I promise I will start to read some of these things because it is amazing that people oh, are nice. are telling they're telling you, you know, they're I'm listening. Feeling they're,
1: better. Yeah, they're saying,
0: they're saying I'm feeling better. Change sure. change my change my whole world. Yeah, it's it's amazing to get uh, you know to get comments like that. So anyway, that's that's a pleasure, and please keep listening and and then reflect it back to me because I forget all the time, you know, and this, you're helping me, you're helping me, you're helping us. Yeah. So I want to bring in our guest today, like I said, a dear friend and wildly talented. And one of the things I really admire about her with her writing and her performing and all the creative stuff she does is that she's honest. It's not easy to do. You have to be brave. To be honest, and she wrote an amazing book called *Sober Stick Figure*. Which, if you haven't seen it, you should get it on Amazon immediately. There's an audio version, and there's a hardcover version. There's a paperback. *Sober Stick Figure*. Amber Tozer from the London area is is with us. And Amber, how are you doing out there? And what's happening for you today? How was your day? It's late there now.
2: Hi. Uh. Yeah. It is nine thirty p.m., which is like an hour past my bedtime because <laughs> I wake up at five AM, eat dinner like a grandma, and then go to bed early. No, it's it's um it's okay over here. Whenever someone says, Oh, we have Amber from England, I feel like people are disappointed that I'm American. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't have the accent, but I can bring my husband down and he has a beautiful accent. If, if anybody wants to hear it, it's okay over here.
0: We've talked a lot over the years, but I really haven't talked to you a lot specifically about the book that you wrote and about your experiences being in recovery and also you know how you look at addiction mm-hmm. and, and, and what you do for sobriety. And what sobriety means to you. So I'd like to talk about some of those things now. And we'll call this an Amber Alert. This is no, there's no Amber Alert. Like I said to you before, I am the worst person at figuring out when somebody is drunk. If you're not on the floor, I don't know what's going on with you. You're fine to me. What kind of drinker were you? And how did it start?
2: It started, I think, like most kids, I guess. You know, mostly... In in college, um, but I never drank like a quote unquote normal person. Pretty much every time I drank, I would get super super drunk. It didn't really kick off until I moved to New York when I was twenty one. Then it got really crazy. It was almost like I needed it because because of the way that it made me feel. In high school and college, I was really. I was still insecure, but I was really busy and type A personality, you know, good student. I was a college athlete, the good girl who was sort of drawn to the darkness. So I would get drunk during those times, but it was very, I was very under control, you know, and my family was around and I'm not saying I was perfect. I was definitely on the edge of being a quote unquote party girl, but did it didn't really kick off until I moved to New York City on my own. And then I was really insecure. I think when I drank, it made those nagging voices in my head shut up. And my control freak, like my type A need to control and be perfect, just sort of melted away. And I didn't care. And it was awesome. Like, it was... It was. It felt magical, and I think that's why alcohol is called, like, it, it's almost like a spiritual experience for me in the beginning, and then it gets horrible.
0: And then it gets horrible. I mean, one of the things that I love that's so interesting that you talk about in your book is that you liked what it did for you.
2: Oh, my God. Uh, you know, I was able to... You know, I moved there. I moved to New York in '99, and it was the dot-com boom, and there was loads of like these interesting, creative little startup companies that had that were started by kids my age with millions of dollars to blow. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that money went to partying, and it allowed me to sort of socialize in that world. And then I found stand-up comedy which I was so nervous about, but I was able to drink and socialize that way. It was, it just became a huge crutch. The The thought of not drinking back then didn't even cross my mind. Yeah. It was very important to me.
0: Could you paint a picture? Like, when did you know that you needed help? Was there a moment when did you hit bottom? And, and can you can you fill in the details of what that was like?
2: I think I knew there was a problem probably five or six years before I actually hit bottom. I knew that I couldn't, well, I didn't know that I couldn't control it, but I started to try to control it probably when I was 24 or 25. And my buzz wasn't as great. Do you know what I mean? I stopped getting, I was like chasing those those first few highs it became horrible because I couldn't get that happy drunk anymore but I also couldn't bear being sober Mm -hmm. so it was a vicious cycle of just feeling like shit all the time but I couldn't stop and so for years I tried to control it which was insanity it's almost like I would rather be a blackout drinker than somebody who's trying to control it as, as weird as that sounds. But, um, yeah. So to answer your question, I knew 24, 25 that I had a problem. And for four years I sort of struggled with it. And then when I was 30, I hit bottom. When I was in LA, I just woke up one morning and I don't, I don't know what it was it was a mix. It was like a perfect storm of things. And my story is not that crazy. Like, do you know, like I didn't, I never got a DUI. I was paying my bills. There weren't people begging me to go to rehab. It was just this, this party girl who could fake it, fake things well enough to think that her life was together. If that makes sense. Cause I Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, there's, there's, I just, I guess you call it a high bottom, but for me, I was suicidal and it was horrible. And I was dating this guy who was disgusting and mean, and I wasn't writing or performing. And I was had a, I was selling mattresses on Craigslist for money and just <laughs> really crazy. But this guy, I was like, something is horribly wrong with me. I, my last night of drinking, I got really, really, really drunk in San Francisco, and I drove over the Bay Bridge just, like, super drunk, like, in and out of a blackout. Like I, And then I went to a friend's house and did a bunch of cocaine, and I don't like cocaine, but I did a bunch of it, and I just woke up, and I sort of had this moment of clarity, and it. I just had this very, very clear, simple thought, being like, if you keep drinking you're going to end up like your dad. Actually, this is my thought. My dad died of alcoholism. So I just had this thought, like, if you keep drinking, you're going to end up just like him. Or if you stop, you have a chance at living a better life. It was very simple, very common sense. And this wave of empathy washed over me from my dad. Cause for years I just hated him. He ended up, you know, dying from this disease. And I just, haven't had a drink since. And it's been like almost 13 years, but I did, I did Mm. join like a, you know, the 12 step program and I did a load of work. It wasn't like a miracle moment to where I didn't have to do anything after that. But.
0: It's amazing that you had that clarity Mm -hmm. and it was all connected to your dad and, you know, and, 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 you know, how your, your relationship with him. And I, I, I guess I wanted to ask you like sobriety, what is sobriety to you? Because I hear the word sobriety. Is it just the absence of, of drinking? Is, is it bigger than that? Not that that's not big.
2: Yeah, I guess you could say you're sober if you don't drink or do drugs. But in in I'm not a mental health professional by any means at all. But for me, being sober is, is practicing a few things. It's much more it's much more to me than just not drinking because I cannot drink and be an insane person. And I've experienced that because for the past 13 years, for the most part, I have worked the 12 steps and have had a daily practice and have had this little toolkit to keep me sane. But there were a couple of years actually when I moved to England when I didn't have a drop of alcohol Or any drugs, but I was a crazy person and I would not call myself sober. I would call myself like a dry drunk. So for me being sober is like a calm, serene person.
0: A state of being, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and so and Jennifer, now you you work with people. I don't know that you work specifically with this, but you worked with all kinds of addiction and, yeah. and things oh, of that absolutely. nature. Yep. Where you're listening to Amber, what what comes up, and and if somebody's
1: listening into the show, how do they how do they
0: deal with this with these kinds of uh, with this kind of an issue?
1: First of all, Amber, thank you for being so honest and open. I mean, so many people are going to listen to this who've been kind of maybe in denial themselves. They're Mm going to hear this. And I think it's going to be really helpful for people. So for me, there's all kinds of addictions, but alcohol is just one. There are many. And it usually comes down to, for a lot, especially really bright people who are overthinkers, who are exquisitely sensitive to their environment, to the world. It's not fun to be like that. And you're kind of constantly in this state of um, not being able to trust yourself in a situation. And what a lot of people have is, and, and Amber, you sort of touched on this in the beginning, this awful, nasty voices in your head that are really full of kind of negativity and self-loathing and you're not doing this right and you're an idiot and you're useless. And and that, that can be torture, honestly. And so I hear a lot of people and certainly young people talk about, I can't turn it off. It won't shut up. It won't go away. I cannot be alone. I cannot be quiet. I can't fall asleep. And so obviously, the easiest thing to do is reach for something that's going to turn it off. And for some people, that's alcohol. Some people, that's drugs or pot. For some people, it's, who knows, shopping. It can be gambling, anything. It's to get the voices to stop. And then they stop and then you have a second of relief and then it comes back and then you got to reach again. So I always say to the kids and young people that I'm working with, there is nothing outside of you that is going to stop that from happening. You can stop it from happening. But the minute you think it's an external thing that's going to, or even a person, finding the right person is going to turn those voices off. No one's going to come and save you. You are going to save you. Right. And that's what Amber, that's what you figured out ultimately that morning. It's like, oh, my God, I have Mm -hmm. to be my own hero here of this story because no one else can do it. Mm -hmm. And that's daunting and that's scary. And you can certainly get support and help and there's groups and therapy and good friends and all kinds of things. But, you know, part of it is learning how to turn those horrible, nasty voices off in your head. And what ends up happening, and we talk about this a lot, but you know, human beings only have two emotions, really, love and fear. And so anger and bitterness and jealousy and shame and guilt and all of those things are really just versions of, of fear, essentially. And so when you're in integrity with yourself when, and that's the serene place that you were talking about, Amber, when you're just like, I love myself and I'm going to forgive myself and sure things are hard, but I really feel like I'm centered. I'm, I'm in a, i am centered i am i am in I have this calm and I feel good with myself. When you're in that place, it's a, it that's where you have balance. And when you are out of integrity with yourself, which can look like all kinds of things, it can, it can, it can look like you know, drugs and drinking and it can look like overspending and it can look like trying to pretend you're something that you're not. Whenever you're doing anything for fear, it's not going to serve you. When you're doing something for yourself out of love, it is going to serve you. And when you're in integrity with yourself, and it, this is it's interesting because this all has to do with intuition and gut feelings, and we're terrible at this in our culture, in our society. Nobody teaches children this. Nobody pays attention to it. Nobody gives it any credit or credence. But it's absolutely essential for being in your integrity. And when you're not in your integrity, so it, we'll use alcohol as an example, when you're lying to yourself and and you know you're drinking more than you should, and you know you have a problem, but you don't want to admit it to anyone. What comes with that, and this is true with anything when you're in denial about it, is there's this disgusting feeling in your stomach. Do you know the feeling I'm talking about? Mm, yeah. The the pit. I call it the, yeah, pit. the pit. Yeah, pit. There it is. And it's a vacuum. It like... It's so heavy, and it feels like it's sucking all your energy out. People wake up with it. They go to sleep with it. That pit in your stomach is actually an important indicator. And people think, oh, i got to get rid of that pit in my stomach, so I'm going to drink more to get rid of it. But the reason you have it is because you're drinking when you shouldn't be drinking. That's it. It's, it's, a, it's a GPS system. It's an alarm system that's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not going to help you. This is not the answer. This is not going to fix anything. And people get confused and they think, well, that feeling is what I need to get rid of because it's my problem. But no, it's information. And so when you start listening to it, which you did that morning, then it pulls you into the right track. And I don't mean to say this is magic either, like it's suddenly going to be solved, but it puts you on the right track of loving yourself, having compassion for yourself, and taking steps every day in the form of self-love. You know, Am I loving myself in this moment? Am I being good to myself when I make this decision? And when you make a mistake, the same way you would if if a friend made a mistake, you wouldn't say, idiot, what a loser. Yeah. You would never talk to another human being that way. And yet we do it to ourselves all the time. It's starting to, to value and find how important it is to love yourself. And it sounds so corny and so stupid, but I promise you, everyone listening, it is the key to everything you're looking for. Your relationship with you. It is.
0: Yeah. And I feel like sometimes what can happen, you know, all the, like Amber, you talked about the, the voices, you just don't want to feel, you don't want to hear them anymore. Don't want to feel them anymore. Don't want to have that pit feeling. Don't want to have those things happen. And right now, my only goal is to get rid of those things. When you realize that those things actually come from someplace and, or they or they're not you, then you can, you know, even relating to them in any way, it's like Jennifer always says, somebody's knocking at the door, it's like not answering somebody who's pounding away at the door and saying, you know, open up, look at me, talk to me. They want attention. And, and even just consciously paying attention can, can be the road to, to starting to make some changes. And the other thing I was going to ask you, Amber, is like you move across you move across the world. When you move and you have such changes in your life, how does that affect your sobriety? How does that affect... You know, the, the sobriety
2: change? When I moved across the country, I I went a bit nuts, to be honest with you, because well, it's it's just bizarre. It's a bizarre thing to do to move to another country, even to another country where they speak English. It's just
1: a huge transition, right? Huge,
2: yeah. So I think I was in shock, and what I should have done, and I'm and I've stopped beating myself. Up over it. It it is what it is. What I should have done is sort of been really hardcore about my recovery practice, but instead I threw it out the window. Thank God I didn't drink or anything, but I didn't really connect with the culture over here. And I didn't feel like drinking. I felt pretty solid. And I had just gotten married. My book had just come out. Like I was just in this really weird state. So to move across the country, or when I moved across the country, I just felt nuts. I sat in it like I didn't, it's like everything I knew, I forgot. And I just went into survival mode,
1: mm-hmm.
2: just stayed alive <laughs> in the cold weather <laughs> in England <Yeah>. alone <laughs> while my husband was at work. And and I talked to you. You were so nice. Remember when I was freaking out, we had a couple of phone calls. You were so yeah. Oh yeah. check in on yeah. me. But then what I had to do, like I reached another bottom without drinking. It was more of an emotional one than anything. I started my recovery practice again. And it's just this daily thing I do. And I connected with a community out here, that, like a 12-step community, which is so important to me because I know ultimately it's, you know, I'm responsible for me and like loving myself, but the community is so it, important
1: right. Yeah. And-
2: and like sharing and just having these insane conversations, I was so judgmental of of the recovery British people. Um, even though I love them, here's my thing with British people: like one on one, very charming. Get a group of them together, and you're the only American. Like I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Now I understand them. I'm the I be I am one of them. Like they talk in leading questions. They talk around things. There's no like blunt honesty. I'm just like if if my husband wants a cup of tea, he'll just be like, um, um, do do you want a cup of tea, darling? And that means please. (laughs) Subtitles.
0: It's the perfect country for me to move to because I don't want to ask for anything ever. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh my god it's it's a series of questions and it, and it, you're just like am i am i in a riddle i am constantly in a riddle <laughs> so anyway i think been going to these talk meetings because i was like you guys are just t-. they'd be like oh i i had a i had a bit of a row with my partner last night but you know trip, carry on i'm like give me the details what happened did he yeah, yeah. Did awesome. you, like, <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. Well, America is like you're describing a difference between two countries. America in the world is like a teenager. It's yeah. like we just say, "Hey, what the fuck is going on?"
1: Yeah. And <laughs> and and I Britain, Britain has been around
0: for for so yeah. much longer, and yeah. it's like everything's a riddle.
1: <laughs> oh my god! I'm laughing Sorry. because my my parents are British, and and it's very it's very similar in Canada too. It's very similar. Like when I was a kid, if, if someone knocked on the door, I can't even describe what would happen. My mother would like signal everybody clutch (laughs) her chest and we would all run and hide. And like the doorbell rings. Now I still like, that's my instinct. It's like, what are we hiding from? It's very interesting. There's a, there are some very significant differences, but I can relate to the, to the riddle. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And how you have bound, you know, what kind of boundaries you grow, you grow up with. I mean, my family would have long conversations you'd have while you're in the bathroom. I mean, you're having conversations with people in the bathroom and it's like, it's like not, you know, there's books in the bathroom, there's music. It's like, we're living in the bathroom (laughs) and it's very strange. Um, And, you know, loud and, you know, just an ethnic, you know, just an ethnic family. you wrote this book and sober stick figure is the name of it. it. It's so good. It's so honest. It's so real. And then the stick figures, when you're, when you think stick figures, you think, well, how evocative can that be? I mean, it's a stick figure. These are not stick figures. They're not your ordinary stick figures. They have dimension. They're about life and death stuff. And it's really interesting. So, you know, I know you've told the story of how it happened and all of that, but, what did you go through writing the book, and what was your you know what was the most challenging thing for you? what go you're going back through your life now?
2: Well, thankfully, I've kept journals since college, so I was sort of used to writing about my feelings and and what was going on in my life and little stories and stuff like that. so I was sort of used to that type of format, but probably the most difficult was writing about my family because and my dad in particular just because I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings or embarrass anybody but then there was this bit of me that was like well you got to be super honest otherwise you're just going to be some sort of full of shit fluffy writer so I did struggle internally with like exposing my alcoholic family who's very lovely like they're pretty much all the alcoholics are dead now. So, um, except (laughs) me. Um, so like, yeah, like there's, there's a lot of men have died in my family, but then there's this gaggle of women, my aunts and my mom and, and my grandmother who passed, um, in 2015, who are fantastic all really work hard, but are codependents in a way. So it that dysfunction is still there. But I was very nervous about hurting their feelings. So that was difficult. And then I wrote, I included this letter that I wrote to my dad that I wrote in recovery that um, a woman suggested I, I write. Because I didn't think I had, because my, I you know, when I was 10, my parents divorced and I didn't really... Spend a load of time with my dad, but there was so much stuff that I need to needed to process. So she told me to wrote, write a letter to him, even though you know he had passed. About why I loved him and why I hated him. I included that in the book, and I think that was probably the most difficult.
0: It's it's very. The book is so powerful. It's very honest. It's very, it's funny in parts. I mean, and then the stick figure part of it, you know, you have stick figures. It's like, you know, it's like a stick figure. It's like you're standing next to a, a sign and there's a red line through a circle. And on the sign is written, you know, empathy, kindness, love. And your response to it is, I'm just glad that sign isn't a no smoking sign. Mm. And and I love that. Yeah,
2: stuff. it's like a psychotic narcissist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I did. No, I know. I mean, I just love that because it's very honest, right? It's very yeah. honest. We we don't, you know, I'm just glad there's no smoking. You know, I'm glad I can smoke. That must have been very therapeutic for you to do, for you to draw. Because when they called you from the, the publishing company, you, the agent said, uh, you know, can you draw?
2: Yeah. And I said, no, not at all. I And I said, I could maybe draw a stick figure. Hmm. and. My agent was like, that's it, sober stick figure. And um, it worked out. That's great. But, and now I, I drawing is amazing and I'm horrible at it and I don't care. It's <laughs> like, wonderful. it's so bad, but it, yeah. it, it somehow works. But it is a very calming thing to do.
0: Yeah, when you're really honest about it, because you, like you said, being a writer, and that's what I admire, you got to look bad sometimes. You're gonna look bad and you're gonna and, and other people are gonna not look great. And mm-hmm. that's part of you know, that's part of writing. That that is definitely a, a part of writing if you're writing about personal things or doing stand up or doing anything. You gotta look bad.
1: Well, sometimes. It really it's doing anything, like that that's just part of being human, right? And yeah. it's actually the bad stuff that has to happen, so the good stuff can happen.
0: Yeah.
2: You never go through anything bad you're never going to learn and grow as cheesy as that sounds
1: i'm just like it's true you you don't learn when you're comfortable we learn when we're uncomfortable i'm certainly not saying let's go get traumatized i'm not saying that saying <laughs> that you know we're going to there's there's bumps all the time and and what i see you know with people in general but certainly with the you know my clients is We live in this kind of desperate roller coaster. It's like, okay, things are good. What can I do to keep them good? Okay, things are fine. Nobody's screaming right now, we're good. And there's so much invested in keeping things like that. But the energy to that is so angsty that that you can't hold that together, that's not possible. And then when things are terrible and everybody's fighting or I don't know, something's going on, it's like, God, it's gonna be like this forever. We're never gonna get out of this. And you live with these huge polarizing swings and one of the secrets, actually, to to being able to kind of cope with life is just be, when you're up, you're like, "This is great. Everyone's happy." Half an hour, probably nobody's going to be happy, but in this, <laughs> now in this moment, I love this, and I'm just going to be right here in this moment. And then when things are terrible, it's like, "Okay, everyone's screaming, everyone's fighting." I'm sure in 45 minutes, somebody will ask an an ordinary question and life will go on, right? And when you're in a real trauma and there's real crisis happening, obviously, that's a different story. I'm kind of talking about the kind of regular ups and downs that can floor us. Truly, they can.
0: I think you become addicted to stress. I think what happens is you're so used to fight or flight and survival mentality, you know, neurologically. And you, you, you become, you know, I become oriented to stress. Yep. So it's like, I don't know how to sit and just be present. Yeah. What I do know how to do is I know how to be worried about everything 24 hours a day. I know how to be, how to try to stop everything from happening. And I'm not saying I do that 24-7, but I think the world is yeah. much more oriented towards, you know, towards managing stress
1: it's true. I and mean, we have that negativity bias. And, and, you know, when I work with with clients and they're doing a lot better and they're actually going through phases where they're feeling like kind of normal and they're like, what is this? This is weird. It's almost like the brain is running a program anyway. What are you doing being happy? And, it, and you almost feel that there's a hole there. That you have to fill with something to worry about. And the brain will search, it'll look for anything it can find to go, there, 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 there we go. There's a good worry we can latch onto. Let's go. Let's do what we do. Right. So, so part of it is learning to recognize the program, is learning to be in the now, is learning to have control over your brain, because it can be so nasty to you. It really can. And, Amber, that's that's why for so many people, it's like, how do I, what can I do to turn this off? So, the strength and the commitment and the love for yourself to kind of make that change is huge. And I hope, I'm sure it will be very inspiring to people that are listening that it, you can do it and you're, and and it, it, you really are worth it, right? And and only you can do it. That's the, the true realization.
0: Well, I, my book is going to be called, let's go get traumatized Um, (laughs) because, because that's going to sell. It's going to sell off the shelves. No, no, Amber, there's, there's so much to, uh, to talk about, but it's getting late there. And I'm, I don't want to keep you up, you know, for, <laughs> for God's sake. It's
1: almost, yeah. Time.
0: Yeah. So in your writing now, and I'll just, we'll, we'll close with this, but in your writing now uh, when you go to, to write from the, the stuff that you're, you know, creating the shows and the things that you're doing because you wrote the book, is it like a huge hurdle? It's like, well, I can do anything. And I know, you know, now that I've been through this and I've come out on the other side, I know I can handle it. Is it that kind of a feeling when you sit down to write?
2: No, I wish. Well, it depends on what I'm writing. If I'm working on somebody else's stuff, like, you know, I'm working on a couple of unscripted reality shows. It's not, I don't want, I don't want to say easier, but it's not so intense and I don't overthink it. But if it's about my life, you know, I'm still trying to, to do stuff with sober stick figure and I'm reformatting it. So when I sit down to do that stuff, it's actually a little bit more difficult than before I wrote the book. And I found like right after my book came out, you know, I did the tour and blah, blah, And, and, you know, got press and all the attention and like it was fantastic. But I, I came crashing down, which I hear is normal. Mm -hmm. It was like, I feel like I never want to write about myself again. So I I had that, and it, but since the book came, it's been four years, I feel like writing again the way that I used to, which was all the time and I had stuff to write about, but it's actually been more difficult since the book came out. I mean, I learned how to discipline myself and to, to reach deadlines and stuff, but emotionally, and I'm a different person, like a completely different person. So when I was writing the book, I had a few years of sobriety, um, was single, was hustling in LA, you know, and now I'm married in England to like a great partner. So I feel like a completely different person. And I'm struggling with an identity crisis that I think is over. <laughs> um, so I, it, it hasn't been that it hasn't been easier to sit and write, to be honest with you.
0: I have to say, um, you've, you've made big, big changes, big leaps and continue to continue to grow. And you, uh, you married a great person and a big fan of his too, uh, Tim Arthur. And, and I really want to thank you. It's, a, it's always good to talk to you and we'll be talking again very soon, but thanks for sharing, you know, some of the, yes, some of the you, things Amber. that happened, some of the journey.
1: Can I just say one thing too? Like I was thinking, Amber, you, you're probably built to be someone who has to write and has to create, and you needed that time to just kind of move inward and reflect a little bit and, and kind of adjust. I call it the orchid phase. Sometimes orchids are so beautiful, but they drop all their leaves. They're not really yeah. gone, but the, under the right conditions, they bloom again. And I feel, oh, like, you know, no. it's true though, it's true. and and that energy, that creative energy is energy and it needs to come out. Right. And and so for creative energetic people, if you're not doing that, it's gonna it's gonna go inward. Right. So yeah, you have a to say, it's really important for people to hear it. So thank you.
0: It's a pleasure, always. Uh and sober stick figure, Amazon. For God's sakes, check it out. Yeah. Check it out immediately. Thanks to Amber, thanks to Jennifer. Uh as always. Jennifer, your your energy is always right on the money. I wish Aww. I don't know what you're drinking. <laughs> Uh I don't know what you drink but listen whatever it is um no I know I know you work you work at it. Thank
1: you, no I literally when I give you when I all the stuff I talk about I seriously live by. I do. I mean Amber talked about that too like when you started to not do the stuff you needed to do to to be in that beautiful serene place. Mm-hmm. I, I do it every day. You you have to. Yeah.
0: Well I'm really grateful for this show. It's it gets it's a wonderful chance to talk to to some amazing people, including uh, including you, Jennifer, and, and Amber, for sure, too. Listen, I want to tell you, thanks for listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see all the notes and all the personal stuff, too, on makelightmedia.com. It's the word make light, make and light together, makelightmedia.com. You can see everything there, or wherever you get your podcasts i want to say thanks i want to say have a wonderful week and i want to say keep coming back at works if you work at i'm ed krasnick for <laughs> amber tozer and jennifer Kalari. we'll see you next time bye thank you